Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. On today's program, we have with us pastor, author, aspiring b-baller, Jeff Metters. Hey, Jerry. <laughs> Jeff, are you, are you a rapper as well? Or am I getting no, that? Um, <laughs> no. No. Okay. I, I, I could try here. I mean, I could freestyle, but yeah, I, I need some good beats behind it. Can you even wrap a gift? Can you wrap a present? No. So Def- you're <laughs> so you're a failure at rapping in every sense of the word. Every sense. What I am good at is putting presents in the uh, bag. You know, with the bag and the tissue oh, paper. That's right, man. The gift bag is one of the greatest gifts that the commercial gift industry gave to men. Yeah, there's a whole technique that I learned <laughs> for how to get the tissue paper just right. Yeah, uh, you I'll make the a, little you make the little points. You have the yeah. comes up in points. Yeah, yeah. you can't I'll just do it. you can't just wad it and throw it in there. No, no, no. You gotta <laughs> you gotta kind of grab the point and kind of sh- flick your wrist a little and get it. Just I'll do an Instagram live on how to do a gift bag or something. Okay, like um, uh, just like everything else on Instagram live, I won't watch that. But <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate the effort you put in for Thank us. You. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Metters is the lead pastor at Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. That's right. Um, did I get the name of the church right? Is it, it's not Redeemer Community yeah. Fellowship. Nope. Yeah, it's Redeemer Church nestled okay. right there in the idyllic uh, beach community of Tomball, Texas. <laughs> now I know better because I'm from that area. <laughs> uh, Jeff and I uh, didn't know each other when I was in Texas, but have come to uh, know each other since then. Met at a conference uh, several years ago and. Um, I've developed a friendship since then, and uh, every time I go home, uh, get to spend some time with him uh, when I'm in the Houston area. Uh, Jeff, I'm glad you're in the program. I want to talk to you about your new book, and that I'm really intrigued about. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, you know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, but there was an episode last year where a guest and I spent some time talking about one of my favorite subjects which is uh, cryptozoological <laughs> creatures. So we talked about the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and Chupacabras and all that sort of thing. And so I'm glad you've written this book because I have such an interest in mythological creatures. Uh, your new book is called Humble Calvinism. And it That's right. is published by the Good Book Company, which is a great publishing company. I don't know why they've gotten into fiction, but um, – they have published this new book of yours, <laughs> Humble Calvinism, the uh, subtitled, And If I Know the Five Points But Have Not Love, dot, dot, dot. And you also happen to get Charles Spurgeon to write an afterword for you. I'm looking at the front cover right. right here, which is amazing. Um, and, and how I know that this is a fictitious book. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. se- no, tell that us seance. about it. <laughs> that no, seance was that. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, um, we're recording this here in the uh, beloved Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Seminary. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm curious to see sort of what document you've pulled this afterward out of. But the foreword is written by um, a living living soul um, who is very near and dear to both of us, uh, Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in Nashville and a great scholar. Okay, tell us about this book, brother. Humble... Calvinism and um, explain why this shouldn't be mythological. <laughs> why shouldn't um, humble Calvinism be an oxymoron? Yeah, man, I think, I mean, we all, as soon as I mentioned the idea of writing this book, 
to one of the elders at our church. We were just talking in the church office and I brought up this idea and he goes, isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> and that, I mean, that was everybody's response. Yeah. And that, that just proved even more that I do need to put effort into writing this book and to try to untangle and to try to separate these ideas that Calvinists are also cranky and need to be locked in a cage because they're so aggressive. Yeah. And, and I think it's, this is why it's not an oxymoron is that the real deal, holy doctrines of grace, when they're understood, not just in our minds, but actually in our hearts and then lived out by the fruits of the spirit, like gentleness and patience and love, I think the doctrines of grace should create gracious people. Um, when we, when we look into the word of God, like James tells us, um, it's, is a mirror. And when we look into the mirror, we forget what we look like. Yeah. We, for, we forget that total depravity. Oh, that's actually talking about me. <laughs> not, not the person in my small group that gets under my skin. Yeah. Like, Oh, unconditional election is actually talking about God's love for me. Not just showing me what happened behind the curtain of the schematics of salvation, but about his love. And, and so I think when we really see the doctrines of grace as a mirror and not binoculars to spy on others and take other people down, then we'll really get humbled by God's mighty love for us manifested in the gospel. So, so Tulip really is the kind of looking at Christ. And I think looking at the gospel in a bunch of different directions. And, and I think when we see the, the doctrines of grace as, as grace, and not just argumentative points and not just, you know, Spurgeon quotes and, and all that kind of stuff. When we really bring it together, I think we will be humbled. Yeah. Um, so let's take a step back. You're defining Calvinism the way sort of um, that's been popularized, right? So the, right. The, the, the nomenclature of Calvinism, you're referring specifically to sort of the five points of soteriology or you know, the, the way people are saved, essentially. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. So because there are some Calvinists, uh, I guess we should say small tent Calvinists, um, who, you know, they think of Calvinism in relate or just Reformed theology in general in relation to ecclesiology and, yeah. and, and all those sorts of things and, uh, you know, view the sacraments and, and what have you. So um, we're speaking primarily of, uh, of the, you know, of TULIP or the, you know, the five points, the doctrines of grace, as you refer. I've always found it interesting um, and it's been somewhat of an investigatory um, process of my own why, um, you know, Calvinists have this reputation um, you know, I think obviously pride and uh, a lack of gentleness and all of the things that sort of are, you know, come with, you know, the fallen nature and, and, and sinful flesh are, are you know, belonging to every Christian, right? So, right. but for Calvinists to embrace, I mean, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure because you're embracing <laughs> this view uh, that essentially says every blessing you have, you have n- nothing to do with, like spiritually speaking, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's right. So if that's the case, then Calvinists should be the most humble um, out of you know all believers because your very system implies uh, sort of a built-in theological humility um, or spiritual humility and the fact that you have n- you had nothing to do with it. You didn't earn it. It wasn't because you were smart enough. It, was, it, it wasn't even because you chose him first. He chose you. Therefore... Um, the fact that you you know contributed nothing should create this great humility. You should be the most humble. 
And yet we still have this reputation. And when I say we, I mean people who ascribe to the five points as I do and you do. Uh, we still have this reputation for, as you referred, kind of the cage stage sort of thing. And the problem that I see is that Calvinists tend to um, prolong that cage stage longer than, <laughs> than – because a lot of viewpoints have the cage stage, right? So, right. right. I mean like the new perspective on Paul or N.T. Wright fans, like there's definitely a cage stage with some of those guys. Yeah. Like I just want to be like, all right, well, let me know when you got – you know, get out of the – there's no such thing as penal substitution cage stage and then we can actually have a you know conversation about it. Right. Uh, but the Calvinist cage stage seems to be like, hey, this is just part of the culture, man. Um, you know, you can be like 60 years old, been a Calvinist for 40 years and somehow you're still in the cage stage. So – I set all that up to ask you this question. Why does it seem um, like humble Calvinism is an oxymoron? So why when you bring the title up, do people just say like, isn't that an oxymoron or you know, isn't that like yeah. looking for Bigfoot? Why does Reformed theology, <laughs> I guess, seem to attract this kind of thing? I, th- I think on one level, it, it goes back to a, an old movie that, that you know, maybe a lot of people have seen or I think a lot of people definitely know the quote. Uh, <laughs> And I'll, I'll spin the quote a little. It's that we can't handle the truth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not that they can't handle the truth. It's that we can't handle it. Um, and it goes back. I think Calvinism and Corinthian meat markets have a lot in common. <laughs> okay. And so 1 Corinthians 13, right? Knowledge puffs up. Okay. And the knowledge that the Corinthians are, are battling and struggling with is the knowledge that, hey, this meat that's being offered – in the temples and then being sold at a discount in the market, it's, it's okay to eat. Um, it's not sinful to eat, but for some Christians, they didn't believe that, that it was going to be a struggle for them. They, they didn't want to eat that, that knowledge. They, they didn't ascribe to that. And Hey, I can't eat it. I used to worship at the temple or, or what have you. And other Christians know it's not a big deal. And they felt an arrogance because, Hey, I know this I'm, I'm let in to the truth about this. Yeah. You don't, you can't handle it. Um, I can handle it, but I really can't handle it. And now Paul says, what's the point? Like love never ends. Um, love supersedes all this. If you have knowledge, but you're puffed up, then it's nothing. If, if you know the five points and can rattle off Spurgeon quotes, but you don't have love, then it's nothing. It's a noisy gong. It's a feedbacking microphone. It's a rotten tulip. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. And so I think for us Calvinists, when we have this knowledge that has really puffed us up, if it's not tempered with the graciousness of Christ who tells us, you know, come and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. So if we learn Calvinism apart from learning Christ, then our hearts will be puffed up, not, not with the oxygen rich, you know, air of the gospel, but I think with uh, helium and, and pride and we get puffed up over Yeah, others. you know, you, you referred to something that I think is a really keen insight into this and something that I've thought about for a long time. Oh, did we lose him? I'm here. You're there. I'm hearing little beeps and boops. What's that all about? Yeah, I'm okay. not hearing anything now, but I, I, I got you now. Was okay. Point, the point I was, was making so a really important point. I was making yeah. such a really good point about your really good point. So, Satan uh, frayed the lines. Yeah. Um, so I think you're touching on something that's a really keen insight, uh, something I've thought about for a while as well, which is for a lot of us, not for, you know, not for every Calvinist, of course, but for a lot of us who sort of came to the doctrines of grace or you know, we're convinced of it um, through a study of the scriptures or, or you know, discipleship or what have you. It it almost becomes this sort of Gnostic 
um, you know, knowledge, right? Like the secret knowledge that we've discovered. Yeah. And there's a bit of that to it as well. Like we have this higher level of understanding, right? Like we see the Bible and it, it even works out that way, right? Like you, you know, you're studying the scriptures and then suddenly you feel like your eyes are open to something you hadn't seen before. Yeah, the matrix. And yeah, and it starts to make more sense. Things, I mean, that's what happened to me in, in, in kind of coming to reform soteriology. There's so many more passages of scripture that suddenly made more sense to me. I saw an interconnectedness. Um, yeah, there's just a clarity that appeared. Well, now there's a temptation of like, gosh, why don't you have this clarity? Or I see things that you don't see, or, you know, I, I know more than you know. And it becomes almost this sort of point of pride to have this, you know, quote unquote, deeper understanding or, or, or what have you. I also think there's, um, I've thought about this a lot for those of us who sort of came into the view, um, sometimes they carry a baggage about having learned it too late, right? right. Like, um, so you have a sense of resentment or maybe even betrayal. I don't know, yeah. but but from your background, right? Like you 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 stole this knowledge from me or you kept me from this knowledge and yeah. now you're just angry about it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think people look back at like former pastors and churches and Bible study leaders. How come you never showed me this? How come, That's right. You know, how come you didn't teach me? Why, why are you hiding God's glory from me? And I, I kind of liken it sometimes to kind of what you were saying. It's like people who are all into government conspiracies. <laughs> right. And they get so riled up and so aggressive about them. That's all they talk about. That's that's what they want to spread. I mean, they become evangelists for conspiracies. Yeah. And I think when people are, you know, they see Calvinism and now it's all they can see. And I think that's a wrong way to view Calvinism. It it shouldn't be it should not be the lens through which we view everything, but I think it should be a great uh, edge of the diamond that shows us the glory of Christ. You know, it's similar to really anything that people come to in a new way or um, – and, and then want others to come along as well. And it's something that um, I tend to caution, um, especially young leaders who embrace just gospel centrality, right, or they're trying to move beyond an attractional paradigm of ministry – and I, you know, constantly have to caution them not to be angry with somebody for not being where you weren't a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. So just because, you know, uh, this is new and exciting to you, think of how you were before you came to this realization. And I think the same is true for this kind of theological system or others. Um, we treat others with a contempt that, you know, we would have withered under if somebody, you know, had it for us when we didn't have this knowledge. So. I think even the fact that we, you know, come to these things lately or the fact that we're new, you know, relatively speaking to the system should give us uh, a humility also and, and a gentleness with others who aren't where we are. And it's not that we're better than them or what have you. Um, but, you know, would we want to be, you know, spoken to in those ways, right. treated in those ways when we didn't have this knowledge? Would that have endeared us to the system? Right. So if, yeah. if, if some angry Calvinist came up to us and was trying to tell us, you know, that we're an idiot or, you know, we just don't get yeah. it or we don't see yeah. what they see. We don't we, care about the Bible. We don't yeah. care about Jesus. Yeah. We wouldn't have been attracted to the view either. No. So I think Jesus golden rule still applies to Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> like you should treat others and talk to others about your doctrine and what you love as you would want to be talked to, as you'd want to be treated. Yeah. Hey, let's take a break for a moment and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. 
The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu Okay, we're back. We're speaking with Jeff Metters. He's the lead pastor of Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas, and author of a new book, Humble Calvinism, which is published by the Good Book Company. And we've been talking about why, um, as Colin Hansen says, Reformed theology seems to attract contrarian personalities. Um, Let's be a little more proactive. We've sort of, you know, dumped on Calvinists here. Uh, hopefully the Calvinists who are listening aren't too angry knowing that, you know, there's two of your own who are here just trying to own the problem, man. And uh, we're two of the good ones, um, right? Like we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, the, we're the most humble ones. We're right? the most humble Calvinists yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that there are. So uh, it's good that you're listening to this podcast because you found two experts in humility here. Uh, <laughs> it's it's actually Ray Ortland. Like, <laughs> oh, my word. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you, you have the perfect humble Calvinist actually. Uh, to write the forward. So um, well done. Well done. I don't know how much you paid him, but uh, it's good oh, that he would do that. I'm too humble to tell you. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let's think more um, forward on this. How do we communicate the humility that should come with this view, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, so on and so forth? How do we address the problem, right? Because the answer to angry Calvinists isn't more angry Calvinists who are angry at the angry Calvinists. Right. Right? Yeah. So how no. do we communicate it? How do we actually address the problem in pastoral and winsome uh, ways that adorn the gospel? I think it comes back to looking at Christ. Um, if we look at Calvinism disconnected from Christ, I think we will get arrogant. I think we'll be overly aggressive um, and I, I think we'll have all of those stereotypes of Calvinism. But if we step back and realize that the points, they're meant to point to a person and they point us to Christ. Like I, I think Calvin himself would, his, his beard would curl if he knew a doctrine bearing his name was fracturing Christian relationships and not pointing us to Jesus. And, and so now we've got to reframe Tulip uh, not to be just about truth and sentences and prepositions and all that kind of stuff, but to really be about a person. So who is the person that isn't totally depraved? The only one, but yet he became sin for us on the cross. Well, it brings us total depravity, shows us that we really need Christ and total depravity teaches total dependency on Christ. So then we move to election. Well, who are we chosen in? We're chosen in Christ and limited atonement, definite atonement, particular redemption. It's about Jesus' death and who he died for, for how he saves his bride, certainly saves her from, from her sin and from, from judgment. And then we go to irresistible grace. How, how are we drawn to Christ by the work of the triune God about the message of the Messiah? And then we get to perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Well, who holds us in his hand and keeps us from stumbling till the end? Christ. And so when we look at Calvinism as this is really showing us how amazing Jesus is, not how smart we are, not how right we are, but how amazing our big brother and our savior is, 
who is gentle and lowly in heart, then we'll, not only will we think like Christ, but we'll be transformed, I think, even more into the character of Christ. You know, what you're describing or what you're explaining is a dis- distinguishing between Calvinism and essentially the gospel, which I think is really a really difficult point for many to uh, come to because they tend to equate, at least functionally, right? Theologically, they may not. But, uh, I mean, I think it's a Charles Spurgeon quote that, you know, Calvinism is the gospel. Um, right. in, in, in context, I think he, you know, he teases that out in, in a way that is, is less offensive <laughs> yes, than just yeah. the sentence would be. Um, but there are people who, who function as if it is. And so, you know, we do treat people who, you know, aren't, uh, you know, subscribers to Reformed theology as if they have either a lesser gospel or no gospel. Mm. And, you know, that seems to me one of the, you know, biggest hurdles to overcome and also uh, one of the best ways to commend your theology, which is to, you know, to not um, teach or preach as if, um, you know, your your flavor of evangelicalism is itself the gospel, that you can't be saved if you don't subscribe right. to this, you know, particular view. Um, I think that's, you know, maybe one way to address the yeah. problem. And I think it's a, a great story. Spurgeon tells the story, but it's it's Whitfield. Um, he's being asked, will we see John Wesley in heaven? Yeah. And Whitfield says, no. <laughs> right. I, wa- I won't. And, you know, I'm sure everybody gasped. Whitfield pauses as the great, you know, actor that he was and then says, because Wesley will be so near the throne and I'll be so far in the back. I won't be <laughs> I won't be able to see him. Yeah. Um, that's that's humble Calvinism. There's a humble Calvinist right there. Yeah. That's good. Uh, so let's talk about some misconceptions people have about Calvinism. Um, are, are, there, are there misconceptions? Well, I don't know. One could be <laughs> that they're not humble. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's not a – I don't know if that's a misconception or not, but it's, it's certainly a stereotype. Um, so what are some misconceptions people who do not scribe to uh, the doctrines of grace right. tend to have about those – who do I know? Calvinists are constantly frustrated. At least, you know the ones I know when they read critiques of of the you know of the system or of the viewpoint. And our you know the largest complaint is you just don't even understand it. Yeah, I can tell yeah. from the critique you don't get it. I don't know if that's always true, um, but I do think it's sometimes true. So, what are some popular misconceptions that people who tend to not like Calvinism um, have about it? Right. I think one of them is that you know Calvin invented it. That's right. Um, Man, I got a friend. Well, we have a mutual friend who I think he believes in it or subscribes to it, but he doesn't like the label Calvinism. He's like, why did we – He, you know, he's like, I subscribe to the biblical view of predestination or something like that. Right. I'm Um, I'm like, well, Arminians would say they ascribe to a biblical view too. That's right. So so like that doesn't help as much. But Augustinianism doesn't really roll off the tongue. No, the way, the, the way Calvinism. Does. I do like Ortlandism. That's good. Oh, hey, that's a good one. Ortlandism. Let's, <laughs> let's get a, let's get a lobby together okay. at at TGC and whatever we need to do. Um, yeah. So Calvin didn't invent it. Right. Um, he, he didn't even come up with the five points. Um, it was after um, his followers did. After the Ar- the Arminians were putting together some some points, and then they had a rebuttal, and they came up with these five points. So so Calvin didn't invent it. Um, Calvin taught more about prayer and the Lord's Supper and baptism um, than he did the scope of the atonement. Um, Calvin was much more – he was concerned about many other things than 
just what would be classified as these five points. So since Calvin didn't invent it, uh, we know it goes even further back. Uh, Augustine didn't invent it. So, I mean, so we got to step back and say, hey, we really do think these are coming from the scriptures. You can be a Calvinist without having ever read. You can be a five-point Calvinist without having ever read John Calvin. Yeah. Because we believe these are truths that we see in the scriptures and not even just from Paul, but ranging from Genesis to Revelation, um, you can find these truths all, all over God's word. So I think that's one, uh, as the Calvin didn't invent it. Um, and I think the second one is that to be a Calvinist is just to follow uh, these doctrinal dominoes that you have to believe in the system that, you know, if you believe in election, then of course you have to believe in limited atonement. And I just always want to tell people, no, you don't. And I know that sounds contrary. I, I don't think you have to believe the next point just because it's the election logical progression. I, I don't have any allegiance to the five points and their chained togetherness. We have allegiance to God's word. And so if a point in some doctrinal system can't be proven and bolstered up from the scriptures, then we should not believe it. And so I think for the longest time, uh, I wasn't convinced of limited atonement of particular redemption yeah. because I, there were verses that, you know, so, so four point Calvinists do exist in this space. Um, and probably, you know, a few years back, then I was, was doing some study, not even looking to study limited atonement. I came across a couple of verses and they really changed my mind and my heart. And I said, okay, I believe that point now. Um, so yeah, it's not new. And it's not system-driven, logic-driven, domino-driven, yeah. but it is scriptural. Yeah, you know, and what's really interesting about the um, the limited atonement sort of uh, debate is that, you know, that is sort of the sticking point for most people. Um, you know, they, you know, I kind of grew up a functional two-point Calvinist. Um, you know, not by that label, but I think most Baptists do, right? So you believe in some sense in original sin. Um, you know, we may have different sort of, um, you know, streams of thought within that. But you, you, you grow up thinking in a kind of total depravity way because that's what's taught to you. You're born in sin. And then we believe in, well, we used to say just once saved, always saved. Right. Uh, which is kind of a shorthand, you know, version, not quite the same, but um, a, a basic understanding of, uh, you know, the P in the tool of the perseverance of the saints. And so we were two pointers, uh, basically. Yeah. Um, but then as people begin to develop and they look at, you know, these certain things and they say, well, unconditional, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's unconditional love and therefore, you know, it's, it, you know, it's predicated on, on grace and what have you. But when you get to this, this limitation, this limited atonement, and I know Calvinists, they like to say particular redemption or definite yeah. atonement. And we try to sure. soft, we try to soften it up, right? Yeah, uh, but two dip is not a fun yeah, acronym. So. That's right. But like once you take the lid off, I mean, we're talking about limited atonement. Right. Um, for me, I think like a turning point is really everybody limits the atonement. It just depends on you know, unless you're a universalist. Yeah. You believe the atonement is limited either in application or um, you know in direction or what have you. Um, it just depends on who's doing the limit. You know. Um, that's right. So. Yeah, I think some of those uh, misconceptions um, are still at work. Um, we should also um, pause. Say, so you've mentioned Arminians and Calvin uh, Calvinists, 
And if you are going to debate, just as just a pro tip for those of you uh, who are already working on your blog posts about how <laughs> these two heretics are uh, on this podcast, Calvin uh, does not have an A in it. Um, so it's not Calvinism. It's Calvinism. <laughs> And Armenian uh, does not have an e in it, so that's right. Um, if you're an Armenian, it's from it's because you're from Armenia. <laughs> yeah, and you can be an Ar- Armenian Calvinist. That's right, uh, uh, Armenian Calvinist. Armenian, yeah. yeah. And you can be an Armenian Armenian. Mm. Um, but Calvinists are not opposed to Armenians. We love people of all tongues, tribes, races, and nations. That's right. <laughs> just Jesus purchased for himself. Yeah. So. I, so, yeah, I'm joking, but um, that's one of the things I think that drives Calvinists crazy is when people opine in such a way and they can't even spell the vocabulary right and it just sort of <laughs> undermines, um, you know, your high-minded uh, critique. Okay, right. so another huge misconception, or is it, okay, uh, it's, re- it's, it's reputation, what we're going to discuss whether it's well-earned or not, is that Calvinism stifles – or precludes even by its very theological uh, assertions uh, evangelism, that Calvinism yeah. is bad for mission basically. So why don't you talk about that? What are the effects or what should be the effects of uh, Calvinism on evangelism? Yeah, th- this, is, this is definitely a, a misconception or a, a belief that's out there that Calvinists are not that serious about missions. And I remember meeting with a, another Baptist uh, pastor in our community and he goes, man, you guys – are Calvinists, you're reformed and y'all do missions. It's like, <laughs> I was like, absolutely. Yeah. And, and here's why first, and I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're disciples of Christ, not of Calvin. So, or not even of a scare quotes, Calvin. But if Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, we do it. Yeah. Um, no matter what I think a verse is actually saying, Jesus says, go. And so we go. And now, now we bring in the, the tulip. Okay, so if we know people are sinful, they cannot be saved on their own, well, then how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And so we got to go and tell them. And now then we bring in unconditional election. So we know there are people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue that Jesus has purchased for himself. And they're his, his elect. He has many elect in this city, in Houston, and in Kansas City. And so we got to go and in Zimbabwe, we got to go and tell them. And then you bring in irresistible grace. Well, then we know our job is to spread the gospel, just say the gospel message, tell people about the crucified and risen Christ, and then the Lord will do the work. And so Calvinism should make us bold and energetic that our father and our big brother and our, the Holy Spirit, they are at work in this world and they've invited us to play a part. And, and so it should make us eager. It should make us excited and, and just so energized to see what is the Lord going to do as I just play a part as being his faithful servant. And if you go back in history, Calvin, Calvin planted lots of churches, yeah. trained. And I think, it, I think you see some stats and, and other scholars talk about probably around in his lifetime through his ministry, through his teaching, about a thousand churches were planted. Spurgeon himself the, in the Spurgeon library so from Spurgeon's pastor's college, he planted churches in England, in Spain, North Africa, South Africa, New Zealand. He imagine, I mean, he trained the guys and he was sent to New Zealand, Australia, Jamaica, uh, the Turks Islands, uh, Dominican Republic, Haiti, South America, India, Canada, and the United States. <laughs> and 
It's unbelievable. So there is, you know, the guy who was known for being a Calvinist preacher there in England, and he is training and sending men all around the world. And I think one, one scholar estimates that around the pastor's college, the reports that were all sent out and by about 1865, around a hundred thousand people have been baptized by Spurgeon's church planters. Mm. You know, I think theologically the assumption comes in because of the understanding of the view, right? So those looking in, in from the outside say, well, you believe that God saves people, um, you know, based on you know, having predestined them. And so if he's predestined someone to be saved, then you don't need to share the gospel with them, right? So they're making sort of a logical, um, right. you know, they're, you, they're doing a spiritual math and thinking that that would disincline um, now, I found experientially that my evangelistic impulse has actually um, increased um, as I've grown, at, at, you know, as someone who subscribes to the doctrines of grace, uh, if only because the pressure is off of me now. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. You know, so I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I mean, I, you know, I may plead with them. I'm certainly explaining the gospel to them. Um, but I'm not believing that someone gets saved because I've got all the right arguments or, you know, the right emotional appeal and what have yeah. you. Um, w- you know, people who subscribe to Calvinism or, or think they do and believe that means they don't need to evangelize um, is what we would traditionally call a hyper-Calvinist or hyper-Calvinism. And those people do exist. They are out there. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, that's not a mythological creature. And yet I wonder sometimes if the critique – is somewhat misplaced because, in general, um, evangelicals, right? It's not just Calvinists, but evangelicals um, are are not doing so great at evangelism. Um, it doesn't no. matter what kind of church you go to, and I mean, you know, speaking broadly here. Um, so there's that. I don't know that it's a, you know, particularly a Calvinist problem. Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of functional hyper Calvinists yeah. in our ranks, um, where we would say, "Oh, hyper Calvinism, that's terrible." But then we turn around and we live like hyper-Calvinists yeah. where we, we don't evangelize and we don't love our neighbor and we don't go to the nations. Yeah. I also think if um, one of the – if the complaints are arising from a narrow view of even evangelism, right? So, um, you know, people see these, these Calvinists taking over these churches and they do away with the invitation, right, the public invitation. Or they right. don't do door-to-door or they don't um, bring in evangelists and have revival meetings or what have you. So therefore, they're against evangelism, and that's – no, they may be against these certain techniques that have be- become equated with evangelism in Southern Baptist or other evangelical circles. But that doesn't mean that they're opposed to evangelism. They're just opposed you – know, or, or, you know, or they don't see um, that the best evangelism is carried out through these sort of um, you know, traditional, really more new traditional – uh, ways of doing church. So, you know, the fact that we would equate a public invitation with, um, you know, the apex of a church's evangelistic outreach um, or, you know, Tuesday night, you know, soul winning or what have you, right. um, all which are somewhat n- neutral things. But just the fact that you don't participate in those things doesn't mean that you're against evangelism, right? So sometimes it's no. just a truncated definition. Yeah. Sometimes people ask us, you know, at our church, like, well, what's, what's Redeemer's plan to reach the community? How are we going to reach him? And my answer is always, you are. Yeah. Like, you are not just our plan, but you are the Lord's plan um, to reach your neighbors. Like, your neighbors aren't my neighbors. Yeah. Your coworkers aren't my coworkers. 
Like the Lord wants to use you, and he's empowered you to do so. Yesterday I was uh, recording an episode of the podcast with um, Ed Stetzer, and I think that episode will come will be uh, published after this one. But just to give a little teaser, I asked him, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's such a common question, um, who's the next Billy Graham? Because he's you know director of the Billy Graham Center and, right. and has long taught and written on missiology and evangelism and what have you. So I just said, who's the next Billy Graham? And his answer was very intriguing, which was Jane the Uber driver. <laughs> it's what he said. Yeah, um, and And, you know, he's basing it on a real person, actually, uh, an Uber driver that he and his wife had um, in a certain city who was named Jane and began sharing the gospel with him. And, uh, you know, he let her go on for a little while, just sort of engaging her, you know, sort of pretending to be a lost person and what have you. And then, you know, eventually kind of you know, showed his cards and and thanked her for being faithful. And he said, you know, that's, that's awesome. what it is. Like there's not a next Billy Graham. Um, the next Billy Graham is faithful Christians who um, are seeking to share the gospel with the people that they encounter on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, so any parting thoughts, brother, um, in terms of your hope for the book? What do you hope readers come away with? Um you know, my assumption would be that uh, somebody, you know, converting to Calvinism uh, would be, um, you know, well, you know, would be a blessing because we believe this is true. But that's not your, you know, the the chief aim of the book, right? So, what's no, what right. do you what are your highest hopes for humble Calvinism, the book? Yeah, I had a, had a few aims for the book, and one of them, you know, very like surface level, is hey, these are beautiful truths. And we want to keep teaching them to the next generation. Um, we, we want to keep resourcing the next generation of disciples and church planners and Acts 29 and, and all, all, all around, you know, our, our tribe to, hey, let's, te- let's teach these things again and, and in a fresh way. And also let's, let's be humble because uh, we know that is an issue for us, that, that the characterization of Calvinists is often true. We can be arrogant. So let's understand these points in our hearts. Um, but I hope that people... As they read the book, they, they aren't just energized with new quotes or new insights about Calvinism, but that they do walk away thinking, Jesus really is amazing. And, and in each chapter, I try to tie in not, not only practical applications, like, like one for limited atonement. Like how in the world does limited atonement have anything to do with my everyday life in the local church? And I think one application is, hey, if, if we believe that there is a book with the names of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, then let's try to learn each other's names in the local church. <laughs> okay. Not just, not just brother, not just sister or not just, Hey man, Hey bro, man, but actually <laughs> names. Yeah. I was not looking to like, be convicted in this conversation today, Jeff, but I, <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, I mean, these names matter to Jesus and they should matter yeah. to us. And, and so, so always trying to bring it back to Christ that as we walk with him, as we learn from him, as we tell people about him, I think that's how we'll truly become humble and happy Calvinists because we'll be humble and happy disciples of Christ. Yeah. Hey, thanks for uh, coming on the program today, brother. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I hope that your book does a lot of good and is a big blessing. One thing um, that I would share with our listeners is that you're not just a strong thinker, and but you are thoroughly gospel-centered. It's one of the things that I appreciate most about you is how much you always bring everything you teach, preach, write um, to the cross and resurrection. And uh, I appreciate that because in a, in, a, in a day when gospel centrality is in danger of simply being a buzzword or referring to some amorphous movement, you truly are gospel-centered. So I appreciate that. 
Oh, thanks, um, and you're a good writer. That's another thing I appreciate. There's just a lot of books out there from even friends of ours who are putting out good information, and yet uh, you're someone who pursues beauty in your writing and um, tries to put words together in in really artful ways. So I appreciate that as well. Oh, thanks, man. I just want to be like you, Jared. <laughs> well, you are you are definitely. I mean, you're one of the godfathers of the gospel center movement in our time, man, and so that, I mean, you've been such a huge. That help. just makes me feel old. I don't. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just striving to be a good Ortlandist. That's what I want to be. That's that. That's it. Me too. Let's. We should get this movement started. Yeah, or, Ortlandism. Yeah, that's good. I'm gonna look it up. Okay. Ortlandism.com. That's or good. We've been speaking with Jeff Metters, or you can go by his authorial title, J. A. Metters, if you're looking up this book on Amazon or any of his books. Uh, Jeff is the lead pastor of Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. The book is called Humble Calvinism. Whether you're a Calvinist or not, I think you should read it and consider it. It's published by the Good Book Company. Thank you for listening to the For the Church podcast. As always, if you're a fan, if you like what you hear here, um, please share us uh, with your friends. Go on iTunes, leave us a good review. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.